and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, Italy, and a see you in hell. This is actually a two-first see you in hell from Argentina and Russia. Starting out in the United States, we just have more and more ongoing revelations about what happened and the documents that were present at Mar-a-Lago, former President Donald Trump's official personal residence. Uh, We know a lot more about these documents. We know a lot more about the obstruction that was going on in order to prevent them from being released. We know uh, just... Just, just like a whole plethora of disturbing details about these. Um, some of my favorites <clears throat> are that we now know that some of these documents were so incredibly secret, like, like they were so classified that the agents of the FBI who had been sent to recover them were not allowed to read them. Uh, they, 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 they were so secret that the people who had been sent to recover these documents couldn't look at them uh, legally. Uh, we also know that Trump's lawyer specifically tried to prevent them from entering one of the rooms in Trump's residence. Uh, in that room alone, they found almost a hundred of these documents indicating uh, several things, right? A, the lawyer knew that these documents were in there. They knew precisely which documents they were that these people were going to be finding, uh, that they needed to be prevented from finding, right? From Trump's perspective. And also, that they knew what they were trying to cover, right? You know, they were knew they were, tr- they knew they were trying to cover their butts here. They were trying to prevent these specific documents from being found. They knew that they weren't supposed to have them. Now, yeah, that's not any revelation from like, uh, like a l- literal sense, you know, like these are things that we knew about this process already. We knew that it was this bad. We knew that it was going to be like this. But the fact that all of this stuff is just more and more out in the open is uh, incredibly disturbing. We also now know that there is some serious evidence that Russian agents were trying to enter the building, trying to enter Mar-a-Lago, while these documents were present inside of it. Uh, presumably, these people were interested you know, clandestinely trying to access these documents that are normally kept in much more secure conditions than a private residence that is, yes, patrolled by the Secret Service because the Secret Service perpetually protects former presidents, and um, some of the members of their family. But this is precisely what the United States government was worried about when Donald Trump took these documents for himself, right? They they were precisely worried that these documents would be available to other people, right? Um, That they would be found or used by, um, by foreign governments or by organizations, Finally, this one is a little bit speculative, but given the depths of depravity that Donald Trump has sunken to previously, uh, especially after his loss of the presidency in the uh, elections in the fall of 2020, I, you know, I, I, I don't know, this is possible. Um, some people are linking the fact that immediately after the conclusion of Donald Trump's presidency, there was a, a swath of attacks on agents uh, on international agents of the United States, some of them working for the CIA, and that some of these attacks were lethal, right? You know, some, some of these agents died in these attacks. And they're saying like, well, is it is it just a pure coincidence that these attacks occurred and were successful immediately after Trump's loss, immediately after his departure? Could it have something to do with the way that he handled information? Could it have something to do with 
people that he sold documents or information to. This is the sort of thing that we might not learn until or unless Donald Trump is actually tried for some of this behavior. Uh, continuing in the United States, there has been a major leak from an Antifa uh, anarchist collective called Unicorn Riot. Uh, you should really check them out. I've used some of the information that they've leaked previously before uh, and talked about it in this podcast. Unicorn Riot is a, is a really excellent news outfit if you want to uh, get some nitty-gritty detailed information about the extreme right, specifically in the United States, rather than the, the overview that I provide in this podcast. But Unicorn Riot has made a, a, a leak. Uh, they have uploaded a bunch of videos from Patriot Front. Uh, Patriot Front is a far-right fascist paramilitary organization in the United States. Uh, the videos that Unicorn Riot has uploaded are from their Pennsylvania branch. And these videos are training videos. Uh, specifically, they are videos that the Patriot Front was taking internally of its training process. What were they training for? Well, they were training for partisan violence. Uh, they were training in physical combat. Uh, some of it, like apparently Queensbury rules boxing, uh, but they were also training in other forms of combat, uh, other forms of street combat specifically. Uh, they have been seen in these videos training in sort of phalanx-like formations uh, with big sticks and with big shields apparently preparing to engage in riot activity, right? You know, like preparing to engage in street brawls with leftists and I guess potentially with police officers and also just like trying to direct and control crowds and people in urban environments. Other leaks showed them uh, training to do pat-downs, right? You know, preparing to, I guess, like capture people in the street and take stuff off of them strategically and uh, safely, at least for them, the perpetrators of this partisan violence. Now, we, again, yes, these are things that we already knew that paramilitary organizations in the United States were doing. We knew that they were conducting these trainings. We knew that they were doing them clandestinely. We knew that they were preparing for partisan violence. However, this is just this is just straight-up evidence, right? We, we know for a fact that they were doing it. Uh, we can see some of their methodologies. We can hear some of their voices. It's possible that some of these people are going to be identified now. And uh, so we can thank Unicorn Riot for providing us with this information. Going to move now to international news, talking about an Italian candidate, an Italian right-wing candidate for the prime ministership of that country. Uh, she looks like she is about to win. Uh, her name is Giorgia Meloni, and she is the leader of the Fratelli d'Italia, or the Brothers of Italy. Uh, the Brothers of Italy party is a splinter off of Berlusconi's party, uh, they splintered off in 2012 when Berlusconi's coalition and power in Italy were starting to fray. Uh, specifically, the Brothers of Italy party is a splinter off of Berlusconi's coalition that has roots in the National Alliance Party, uh, which itself is the inheritor of the old Italian social movement, which dissolved in the 1990s. Now, the reason that I'm bringing you through this genealogy of parties is because the Italian social movement uh, is a neo-fascist party, an openly neo-fascist party. Uh, they existed from World War II, or from the conclusion of World War II, up until the 1990s in Italy, sort of in the background of politics, as the party that people who were fascist loyalists would join because the actual fascist party 
had, of course, been banned and remains completely banned and 100% illegal in Italian politics. So these people joined the Italian social movement. When the Italian social movement dissolved, some of those people joined the National Alliance. And this new party, the Fratelli d'Italia, the Brothers of Italy, they are the inheritors of that mantle. They are, the, you know, let's say the uh, great-grandchild of the Italian fascist party. Uh, so that is the party that this woman, Meloni, leads. Uh, they are a nationalist party. They are a xenophobic party. They are post-immigration. They are Eurosceptics, uh, which means in, in the European Union context, a, a Eurosceptic means that it's a party that is uh, distrustful and doesn't like the influence and power of the European Union vis-a-vis -vis their national government. Uh, so you kept the United Kingdom Independence Party as a Eurosceptic party, for example. Meloni herself is an interesting leader for this party in that she is extremely young. Uh, she is in her 40s, which is extremely young for a candidate for national leadership, essentially in any Western country, uh, especially Italy, which has been ruled by an increasingly aging Berlusconi, you know, for, for, for most of the like last several decades. Uh, Meloni was a journalist and spent a long time as a youth activist for various right-wing movements, uh, including, for example, the National Alliance Party. Uh, she entered parliament in coalition with Berlusconi's party um, and was has essentially been a politician in Italy since her 20s. Now, the Fratelli d'Italia party that she leads had been extremely small up until just the last, like, four or five years. In 2018, when they sought election in the Italian parliament, they only won 4.3% of the vote. Current polls hold that in the election that's coming up in October, uh, the party is going to get over 25% of the vote, uh, which means that it is extremely likely that Maloney, the leader of this post-fascist party, is going to be the next prime minister of Italy. Uh, this would probably mean that she would form a coalition with former allies, including Berlusconi's party uh, and Salvini, uh, who leads the Lega party, the, formerly the Lega Nord, uh, which is a, 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 a not exactly neo-fascist party, like, like it's not particularly specifically connected to these neo-fascist organizations, but it has the, the connections to that uh, Italian nationalist politics. Uh, so, yeah, it's entirely possible that this extremely major European country, one of the G8, uh, is going to be led by a, an extreme right-wing person uh, in the next couple months. I'm going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week we got a twofer, uh, that is we're talking about two dead right-wing figures, one of them from Argentina and the other from Russia. We're going to start out with the one from Argentina. We're talking about Jordan Bruno Genta. Uh, Bruno Genta was born in Buenos Aires in 1909. Uh, Genta attended UBA, uh, which is the leading public university in Argentina, the University of Buenos Aires, and got a degree in philosophy and literature. He, he became a professor and was a leading light in the country's extreme right wing, uh, and specifically in its Catholic wing. Uh, he was a major ideologue, published many, many major books uh, from essentially uh, the 1930s up until the 1970s. He was in large part responsible for, or at least has been considered to be responsible for the centrality of the right wing and specifically uh, right wing Catholicism to 
Argentine national identity, specifically Argentine right-wing national identity. Uh, today, he is most famous for being murdered by the Peronist left uh, on the 27th of August, 1974, uh, which was right before the coup that would lead to the extreme right-wing government that uh, engaged in the, you know, the, the dirty wars, or as they're so-called, uh, the process of disappearances and clandestine torture and murder conducted by the Argentine government and its allied paramilitary organizations in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, so Genta himself did not live to see the full fruiting of his ideology, like, you know, becoming acted out on in the streets and uh, by the government. But he is clearly, he clearly was a, a progenitor of this ideology. Moving on to Russia, I'm talking about Konstantin Vladimirovich Rozevsky. Uh, Rozevsky was the leader of the exiled Russian fascist party during World War II. Now, yeah, this was when uh, Russia was the Soviet Union, right? Uh, an officially communist country that uh, hated fascism probably more than it hated literally anything else in the world, and the Soviet Union hated a lot of things. Uh, this meant that any fascist uh, like Rozevsky needed to leave the country. And so he and the fascist party engaged in an intentional self-exile to a place called Manchuria, to a country that was then called Manchuko. Manchuria is the uh, northeastern arm of China. It is the uh, place where the people who stay, who started the last uh, imperial dynasty of China, the Manchurians, are from. Manchukuo was a puppet state uh, that was run by the Japanese Empire uh, that they had set up under the deposed former emperor of China. So they they moved him there and they set up this puppet state as part of their invasion and takeover of the Chinese mainland. Uh, so uh, Rodzajewski himself fled the USSR in 1924, uh, and he left for Manchuria. He joined the fascist party in 31 uh, and rose to the leadership of that party. As the leader, he attempted to form international connections with other leaders of fascist groups, uh, including some in the United States. Uh, he was largely unsuccessful in this. Uh, the Japanese apparently kept them around, though, because they were interested in potentially using these guys as puppets to rule Siberia if the Japanese and the USSR ended up going to war. Instead, the way World War II played out was that the Japanese and the Soviets never engaged in direct, like, or at least like extremely major direct conflict until the very conclusion of the war, uh, when the writing was on the wall and it was clear that the Japanese were going to lose. And so this meant that Rodzewski and his allies were essentially useless to the Japanese. He saw the writing on the wall there and surrendered to the Soviets after the war. He was promised a job in the Soviet Union. You know, he was promised some amnesty. This was denied. Uh, he was killed in a Stalinist purge. Uh, he was killed in the basement of what was then the KGB headquarters, the 30th of August, 1946. So, Genta and Rodzewski, we will see you both in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. You can also reach me at Gmail at the email address. Uh, that's 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H I S T of the right and uh, fascism 15. 
All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week.